Um, And if you turn in your Bible to Acts chapter 19, we'll be um, reading from there and and closing up uh, Acts 19 this morning, and then uh, we'll just keep rolling through till we come to the end of uh, chapter 28. Thank you, Tim. Uh, We're going to read, and then uh, we'll we'll dig in. Acts 19, starting in, in verse 20. In the aftermath of a uh, tremendous amount of conversion, conversion in, the, uh, in the city of Ephesus. The scripture says, So the word of the Lord continued to increase, that's verse 20, and prevail mightily. Thanks. The word of the Lord continued to increase and prevail mightily. Now after these events, Paul resolved in the spirit to pass through Macedonia and Achaia and go to Jerusalem saying after I have been there I must also see Rome and having sent into Macedonia two of his helpers Timothy and Erastus he himself stayed in Asia for a while about that time there arose no little disturbance concerning the way for a man named Demetrius a silversmith who made silver shrines of Artemis brought no little business to the craftsmen. These he gathered together with the workmen in similar trades and said, Men, you know that from this business we have our wealth. And you see and hear that not only in Ephesus, but in almost all of Asia, this Paul has persuaded and turned away a great many people, saying that gods made with hands are not gods. And there is danger not only that this trade of ours may come into disrepute, but also that the temple of the great goddess Artemis may be counted as nothing, and that she may even be deposed from her, her magnificence, she whom all Asia and the world worship. When they heard this, they were enraged and were crying out, Great is Artemis of the Ephesians! So the city was filled with the confusion, and they rushed together into the theater, dragging with them Gaius and Aristarchus, Macedonians who were Paul's companions in travel. But when Paul wished to go in among the crowd, the disciples would not let him. And even some of the Asiarchs, who were friends of his, sent to him and were urging him not to venture into the theater. Now some cried out one thing some another, for the assembly was in confusion, and most of them did not know why they had come together. Some of the crowd prompted Alexander, whom the Jews had put forward, and Alexander, motioning with his hand, wanted to make a defense to the crowd. But when they recognized that he was a Jew, for about two hours they all cried out with one voice, Great is Artemis of the Ephesians! And when the town clerk had quieted the crowd, he said, Men of Ephesus! Who is there who does not know that the city of the Ephesians is temple keeper of the great Artemis and of the sacred stone that fell from the sky? Seeing then that these things cannot be denied, you ought to be quiet and do nothing rash. For you have brought these men here who are neither sacrilegious nor blasphemers of our goddess. If therefore Demetrius and the craftsmen with him have a complaint against anyone, the courts are open and there are proconsuls. Let them bring charges against one another. But if you seek anything further, it shall be settled in the regular assembly. For we really are in danger of being charged with rioting today, 
since there is no cause that we can give to justify this commotion. And when he'd said these things, he dismissed the assembly. Let's pray. Father, we thank you uh, for this word from your holy word. Uh, we believe the truth that all scriptural, scripture is breathed out by you and is profitable for instruction, teaching, correcting, training in righteousness so that we can be equipped for every good work. Lord, we look out into a world today where uh, there is violence, some of it perpetrated by the hands of evil men and mobs, some of it perpetrated by the hands of different governments. Uh, Lord, there, there has been a tearing down of the standards of society. And as our, our culture transitions from one that has a Christian heritage and becomes post-Christian, uh, we see changes in our culture that disturb us cause us concern. And yet your church, when it was born, ministered in a culture that was far more wicked than the one that we find ourselves in today. Uh, the ideas of all shades and stripes, Lord, of all different categories were far different. And yet your church prospered and grew, and spread, and your word prevailed mightily, and you protected your church in its infancy. Lord, as, as the road ahead of us for the church in America is uncertain as we round the bend, uh, we can get nervous and scared. I pray that, that we would lift up our eyes, Lord, from the hills and not anxiously looking, look about and say, where will our help come from? Because we know that our help always comes from the same place, from the days of Abraham through the days of David to the days of the early church and then down to today. Our help comes from the Lord who made heaven and earth. And whether the mountains crumble and fall into the sea, though all that we see is undone, we know that in Christ we have received a kingdom which cannot be shaken, and therefore we can take confidence that no matter what happens around us, that you are on your throne, and we are safe and secure. And so we pray that you would teach us and encourage us from your word this morning, Lord. Challenge us, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Uh, we live uh, in the same day and age in some categories that the early church lived in. Uh, there has never been a time, it's my belief, where there has not been, in some sense, violence against Christians in the world. Uh, we, we, we may not have heard about it in the past because of a lack of reliable news service or a, a, um, a lack of of ability for, for people to communicate. Perhaps uh, churches were burned in different regions of the world. Perhaps uh, Christians were imprisoned and tortured in places where there was no ability 
for them to let us know what was going on. But we live in the day and age of, of Twitter and Facebook and email and uh, instantaneous video feed. And so we see, in some sense, in greater degree, what I believe has been happening since the ascension of Christ, violence against the people of God in the world. Uh, the burning of churches in Muslim countries around the world. Uh, we see in Iran this man, Pastor Saeed, imprisoned by the government. Uh, in Sudan, it has been going on for over 20 years, the forced Islamization of families where Christian parents have their children taken away from them and raised by other families to believe in Islam. The church of God, the kingdom of God, has always suffered violence from its beginning. Today, we see the culture in America changing and, and perhaps the, uh, the, the once friendly environment or not quite so friendly environment of the, the 60s and the 70s and the 80s is now turning to where we could say that we are, are truly living in a day and age that is hostile to the teachings of Christ. I would condition that by saying this. I don't b believe that we are in a culture that is openly hostile to the church. There may be outrage and rejection of the ideas of Christianity. There may be rejection of the tenets of Christianity in our public schools, but there is not an outright rejection of Christianity that boils over into violence in our culture, at least not yet and not in great degree. You may be able to point to a news article where a Christian has been physically wounded for his faith, but I would say the exception there proves the rule. You might have to look for a couple minutes. How should we react to the change in culture? Should there be some sense of internal moral outrage? I would say yes. We ought to feel concern. We ought to feel that, that it's unjust when Christians are tormented, rejected, persecuted for their faith. But externally, what should we do? And I think we find today in our text at least the beginning of an answer. Before we dig in, let's just set the stage. Paul is ministering in Ephesus. He has shared the gospel. He's been there for over two years ministering in a place called the School of Tyrannus. Uh, the way this probably worked is that in the cool of the day, in the morning, uh, Tyrannus, what an awesome name. Uh, he's a teacher. He owns a school. Wouldn't you love it if your, your kids came home and said uh, that my, my teacher's name is Mr. Tyrannical, Mr. Terrifying? awesome name. I love it. Uh, so I had a teacher when I was, when I was younger. Her name was Mrs. Dragon. <laughs> my brother was in love with her. Um, he came home and he said, I have the most wonderful teacher. And my mom said, really? What's your name? And he said, Mrs. Dragon. And she was like, Mrs. Dragon. It's cool. Some teachers got cool names. Some have lame names. We're not going to talk about it them. We don't want to make them feel bad. Notice what it says here, that, that as Paul is ministering and teaching in the school, that Tyrannus teaches probably in the cool of the day, and then Paul takes the school in the later hours when, when the sun is up and nobody wants to come, but he's teaching, in, and he's got great influence. Uh, people are repenting, and they're burning their, their magic books and their religious items, and, and the, the uh, amount of things that's destroyed is of extreme value. And notice what it says in verse 20, the word of the Lord continued to increase 
increase and prevail mightily. Now, we ought not to make the mistake to think that the Word of God, and, and I don't believe that any of you will do this, that the Word of God became more true, or, or that the Word of God um, grew in amount. Uh, because, because people don't decide when more of God's word has entered into the world. God speaks, it is his word, it's reliable, it's necessary, and it's important. But as hearts and minds hear and receive and believe and repent and transform under the influence of the word, the word of God increases in its influence and acceptance. Uh, More people come to recognize the word for what it is, and they adopt its lifestyle. They receive salvation by believing in Christ, and the Word of God prevails as people are transmitted, the Bible says in Colossians, from the domain of darkness, which we're all born into, and they're transferred into the kingdom of God's beloved Son by belief in the gospel. The Word of God, the Word of the Lord, continues to increase and prevail mightily. What does that look like in the culture? The gospel is proclaimed. Hearts are renewed. Lives are changed. Marriages are saved. The culture begins to change. People begin to reject witchcraft and to turn away from the worship of false gods and to turn to worship the one true God who created the universe and then came in the person of Christ to redeem them. And in the glow of gospel victory, the devil incites the world to attack, to intimidate, to silence, to urge the church to to fall away. As Paul is kind of reveling, and this is a good thing to enjoy and be excited about, he's he's reveling in in what's going on. He, He He articulates his future plans. Notice what it says in verses 21 and 22. Just finishing setting the stage here, and then we're going to get to verse 23. It says, after these events, right, uh, uh, the the repentance in Ephesus and, and gospel growth, after these events, Paul resolved in the spirit to pass through Macedonia and Achaia and go to Jerusalem, saying, after I've been there, I must also see Rome. And having sent into Macedonia two of his helpers, kind of set the stage for him. He'll come there in a little bit. He stayed in Asia for a while. Verse 21 is a programmatic statement for the rest of the book. This is kind of a a foreshadowing. It's the outline for the remainder of the book of Acts. You'll recall in in Acts chapter 9, when, when Paul was converted, verses 15 and 16 say this, But the Lord said to him, speaking to Ananias, who would go and and minister to Paul, he would lay his hands on him and pray for him, and the scales would fall from Paul's eyes, and he would become a believer. This is the programmatic statement for Paul's life. The Lord said to Ananias, Go, for he, that is Paul, is a chosen instrument of mine to carry my name before the Gentiles and kings and the children of Israel. For I will show him how much he must suffer for the sake of my name. And from Acts 9 to Acts 19, we've seen him as a chosen instrument carry God's name, carry the name of the Lord Jesus Christ before the Gentiles and some rulers and the children of Israel. And he has suffered, hasn't he? Now Paul makes this additional statement, and he says, after I've been through Macedonia and Achaia and I go to Jerusalem, I must also see Rome. 
I, I want to see Rome. I want to get to Rome. He's going to write a, a, a book to the Romans, and he's going to say, I want to come to you, and I want to preach the gospel to you, and I want the church in Rome to be strengthened and grow, and then I want you to help me, and that means give me money to get to Spain because I want to preach the gospel there. I want to preach the gospel where Christ is not named. I've, I'm, I'm moving around and I'm finding the church everywhere and I'm like, I'm running out of, out, of, out of blank space to preach the gospel in. So I want your help. And this is what we're going to see happen in the remaining chapters. He's going to go through Macedonia and Achaia. He's going to arrive in Jerusalem. A bunch of stuff's going to happen and he's going to wind up in Rome at the end of the book. That's the, the, the outline for the remainder of the book of Acts. As gospel victory is taking place, as people are repenting and turning from witchcraft and burning their magic books, they're not going to the same shops as they used to. They're not frequenting the same businesses. They're not going up to the temple of Artemis anymore to worship. And Paul may not know it, but as he sows the seeds of the gospel... He is also sowing seeds of violence against himself and the church, though he does not know it. Because the seeds of the word of God are also seeds which bring rejection from the world and bring violence against the church. There are no two ways about it. When you take a stand for Christ and you stand alone in the world to preach the gospel, you will eventually be rejected. Notice what it says here in, in verse 24. This man named Demetrius, who is a silversmith, he makes silver shrines of Artemis. Artemis is, uh, there are two Artemises. There's the Diana who carries the, a bow, um, and, and you know she, she hunts mystical deer in, in Valhalla or whatever it is. It's uh, on, on Mount Olympus. Sorry, not Valhalla. That's Vikings. Um, and, and so, so she, she is one kind of Artemis. The other Artemis is a mother goddess who, who gives birth to, uh, to, to all children, and uh, she controls fate and, and has uh, the, the ability to control the future. And so her temple is frequented by many people. Apparently, uh, the way this temple was set up is that a, a meteorite fell from heaven, and they were kind of like, hey, that looks like a woman. And so they stood it up. You know, she was like lying down. They stood it up, and they carved it, and they made it look like this mother goddess, and then they built a temple around it. And it became this wonderful, to them, worship site. Um, and, and, and so what these guys do, the silversmith, is they make little shrines of the big shrine. And if, if you really enjoyed worshiping at the, the Temple of Artemis, probably at the end of this day, they'd be like, if you've enjoyed your day here at the Temple of Artemis, you can take the experience home with you here by this little temple. Um, now, there, there's, a, there's, something, there's, something, there's something distinct from the way that the Jews worship. And, and this characteristic carries over into Christian worship. In Joshua 22... When, when the tribes that live on the other side of the Jordan are dismissed after Joshua and his generation occupy the land, right? They, they, the other tribes go and they build themselves a great big altar to the Lord, right? And the tribes that are, that are in the promised land get outraged and they, they say to war and they draw their swords and sharpen them and they go and they head over and they say, what do you mean building this altar? Right? And they're very upset. You know why they're upset? Because you don't build other altars. 
You don't make any copies of the altars. There are no alternate worship sites in Judaism. There's one, one altar, and that's it. Um, well, here's what they say on the other, other side of the Jordan. Um, the, the, the tribes that are living over there, they say, look, this is what we did. They said, we're not, we're not going to sacrifice anything on this altar. This altar is intended to be a testimony that, that we were uh, once going to go into the promised land, but we decided to stay here because the land was good, and Moses said it was good, and he gave it to us as an inheritance. And so we built this altar so that one day when you're like, hey, you live over on the other side of the river, that's the wrong side of the river. This is the promised land. What? We don't have any fellowship together. We'd be able to say, look, you know, we have a copy of your altar, and we don't sacrifice anything on it because we're part of, part of you. And, and they're all like, ah, oh, all right. And they put their swords away, and they go back. There's only one true worship place in Judaism, that's the temple. It was the tabernacle, but then it was the temple. And as believers, Jesus says in John 4, the day is coming when the Samaritans won't worship on Mount Gerizim, and the Jews won't worship in Jerusalem, but they'll worship God in every place because God is spirit and desires to be worshipped in spirit and in truth. The, the idea of place is going away, even though there is just one sacrifice, one person to be worshipped, and that's Jesus Christ, the Lamb of God, who comes to take away the sin of the world. That's not the way that the idolatrous world functions. Here, you want to worship God? Here, here's a little uh, a copy of the Artemis experience that you can take home and unpack at the Artemis playset, and, and you can worship the God there. Their temple functioned also as a, a banking site and a worship site. It was one of the seven wonders of the ancient world. And as the gospel goes forward in Ephesus, people start throwing these little shrines away. They stop buying new ones. When their daughter's 18th birthday arrives and she's going to get married, they don't go and buy her a worship set for her house because they're Christians now and they worship Jesus and they don't need any stuff to worship him. And this really irritates Demetrius. Notice here, the issue on the table is not really doctrinal. It's not really ethical. At the root, the trouble is economic. Paul's preaching and public repentance had resulted in a decline in idolatry. And these men who dealt in silver trade and others began to feel it economically. We say that we would love revival in the United States. I think we're moving beyond the need for revival into the need for awakening because there are more and more people who never have been Christians because we are turning into a post-Christian culture, we need awakening, we need people to come to Christ. But an awakening, a revival, would mean that many industries in the United States would be hurt. Think about it, there are a number of people who profit by peddling abortion and pornography and any number of sins, and if people were to come to Christ, they would have less income. It's a truth that you cannot stomp on the most sensitive part of a man without him responding. When you stomp on someone's purse, it hurts. If you grab a snake by the tail, you ought to expect to get bitten. And so Demetrius, who's losing money, and all of his friends are probably saying, we got to do something. We need to fix this problem. He, he gets up, and he is going to cause some trouble for Paul. He is going to deal with this thing. 
He's probably the head of the Silversmiths Guild or he's the head of the, the Chamber of Commerce or something. Uh, this is his representation of, of Paul's teaching, right? He says that what Paul is doing is he's, he's teaching that gods made with hands are not gods. This, by the way, is true. He's accurately representing what Paul taught. In Acts 17.29, in Athens, Paul taught that God made with, gods made with hands are not gods. Being then God's offspring, we ought not to think that the divine being is like gold or silver or stone, an image formed by the art and the imagination of man. Paul is probably uh, taking this teaching, this idea from Isaiah 44. If you were to turn there and look at verse 12, Paul, this is what Isaiah says. He says that the ironsmith takes a cutting tool and, and he works over the coals of his fires. He fashions with hammers and, and works it with his strong arm. He becomes hungry and his strength fails. He drinks no water and is faint. The carpenter stretches a line. We're making something. We're building something here. He marks it out with a pencil. He shapes it with planes and, and marks it with a compass. We've got a craftsman at work. He shapes it into the figure of a man, with the beauty of a man, to dwell in a house. He cuts down cedars, or he chooses a cypress tree or an oak and lets it grow strong among the trees of the forest. He plants a cedar and the rain nourishes it. Then it becomes fuel for a man. He takes part of it and warms himself. He kindles a fire and bakes bread. Also, he makes a god and worships it. Do you see the disconnect there? We go out into the forest and we select a fine tree and we, we cut down part of it. We say, oh, this nice, this big part, this would make a wonderful god. But in order to cover it with gold and silver and iron and stuff, in order to, to do the rest of the work, we're going to need some, some fuel for the fire so the rest of the tree we'll use as fuel. But this part can be god. That's absurd. That's the, the point here. Half of it he burns in the fire. Over the half he eats meat. He roasts it and is satisfied. Also, he warms himself and says, Aha, I am, I am warm. I have fire. And the rest of it he makes into a god, his idol, and falls down to it and worships it. He prays to it and says, Deliver me, for you are my god. The, 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 the point here is that idolatry deceives people. We are by nature creative beings. We, we create. We create art. We produce music. We write books. We do all kinds of things. Idolatry, at the center of our heart and mind, we, we believe somehow, if we are caught up in the sin of idolatry, that we can produce a God created in our own image. Christianity doesn't work that way. It makes real claims about history and about the universe and about the way that we ought to live. If it's man-made, if, if we have invented this thing, if we came up with Jesus, if we produced him and, and, and wrote all this stuff on our own, it's the doctrine of demons. But here's one of the great strengths, I believe, of Christianity. Who would make up a religion where you can't do anything to be saved? Where God himself must serve and save you. Where all of your works are unrighteous. And unless God acts to save, you cannot be saved. 
And who would invent the idea that God enters into the story and takes all of our sins upon himself and pays for them? It's absurd. In every other religion, we set up an image or an idol or a god and we say, what must I do to keep you happy? And then we bring it stuff and sacrifice it. Paul is saying that gods which we can produce ourselves are not gods. And so he rightly attacks this teaching as false. And as people hear what he's saying and they, they, they react to it and, and, and work with it, they realize the blindness of idolatry and they repent of it. Now, let us not judge those who worship gods made of gold and silver. Let us not judge them too harshly because so often in our culture, we worship false gods, gods of careers, trophies, personal attainments. We want our children's lives to turn out perfect. Sometimes, not because we have our children's best interest in mind, because of what people will think of us if, of us if our children are not perfect. These kinds of things are idols. And they're not real. When we set up an idol, when we set up some thing to be worshipped, other than God, gods which we produce with our own hands, we are setting ourselves up for disaster and deception. And Paul tears down the false gods of this culture. And he does them a service, though they don't like it. I think that we say that the culture that we live in, or at least let me say this, I say this, the culture that we live in, we... We take such great offense at things. I think that this has always been the human condition. We don't like to be corrected. We don't like to be told that we're wrong, that we're not, we're not pursuing the right things. It hurts our feelings, and we react strongly when someone says, you're doing it all wrong. But think about it this way. If I don't realize my house is on fire, and my neighbor is banging on my front door saying, get up, get the kids out of the house, rescue them, save them, do something, and I'm like, I'm trying to sleep here. You're bothering me. I'm being ignorant. He's loving me even though it's bothering me. So, I, mean, I mean, if he didn't love me, he'd just be like, ah, I'll roll over or I'll put, I'll see, I'll see what's on Sports Center. Right? Paul is loving this culture by telling them that gods which are made with hands are not gods. He's clearing the deck so they can see the truth. Demetrius makes three charges against them. I've got to speed up here. Uh, he first tells them that, that he says to the, to the silversmiths that their trade, if Paul's, uh, Paul's gospel continues to increase, that the trade will lose its good name, that people will start to say, man, making little idol houses is, is it's not really a good business. You're leading people astray. He says if Paul's gospel continues to advance, the temple will lose its prestige and the goddess will lose her divine majesty. On top of the fact that his economic status is being wounded, he heaps on these religious and civic pains. He, he cloaks in a disguise the fact that he's being hurt financially with with charges or, or, or ideas of local patriotism and religious zeal. He's, he's whipping up the crowd. Now, let me just make a point of application here. As a pastor, I see people doing this to Christians all the time. 
posting stories on the internet or saying things on the radio that are designed to get people offended. We need to be discerning people and be very aware of the fact that people in the media are selling a product that's designed to prey on our anxieties and our fears. And as Christians, we need to be discerning people. Little, very little in the Christian life is to be done without thought or care or consideration. Okay, let me, let me qualify this. A Christian ought to be ready to preach, pray, or die in a moment. Everything else can wait. If somebody needs $150,000 for some dire need in our culture, they don't need it tomorrow. Does that make sense? You can take three or four days and think about it, whether, whether you're going to give them money. People will say things like, you have to call your senator today, all right? Or our whole culture is going to go over the waterfall. Our culture's gone over the waterfall. <laughs> Calling your senator may make some difference for a bill. Yes, it is important. You ought to do it. But it's not the end of the world if you don't. Does that make sense? Our culture's gone over the waterfall already. More about that in just a moment. Demetrius whips people up because when people think that something's going to affect their religious outlook on life or their civic outlook or it's going to affect their children, they react with rage and violence. He is manipulating these people to meet his end. And as Christians, we ought to look out in the world and when people say, this is a quote from Isaiah, there's a conspiracy, there's a conspiracy. We ought to realize that God is still on his throne. Verse 28 describes the not little disturbance of verse 22. The people hear this, the, these silversmiths who's, who, who Demetrius is talking to, and they start to cry out, great is Artemis of the Ephesians. This must be like their, their team chant. And so they're screaming and, and chanting this, and they're running out into the city, and they're gathering other people and, and shouting this. And, and everybody's like, yeah, that's what I believe. I believe Artemis of the Ephesians is great. And they're rushing together down to the theater. On the way there, they see Gaius and Aristarchus, Paul's friends of Paul, and they grab them and they drag them in there. They're going to they're gonna beat them up or something. Paul hears about this. He wants to go in among the crowd, but the disciples are like, no way, man. You're not going in there. Are you crazy? And then some of Paul's government friends, the, the Asiarchs, they say, do not go down there. Stay away. You're only going to make things worse. Look at the verse 32. It says, some cried out one thing, right? What are they saying? Kill Paul, right? Eat organic, it says the next, some another. They don't know why they're there. The assembly's in confusion. Most of them did not know why they had come together. I think it was P.T. Barnum who said, if you put up a sign that says this way to the egress, people will be like, oh, the egress. What is that? And they'll follow the sign and they'll be like out of the tent. And he's like, that's how you clear the tent. You're like, you use a word that people don't know that means something else and off they go. Um, they don't know why they're there. They're just there because they feel somewhere in their soul some sense of outrage and they're going to they're gonna, they're gonna get it out. They're screaming, great is Artemis the Ephesians. They've cloaked this economic 
struggle that they're going to get revenge for in religious language. And now they're like, yeah, great is Artemis of the Ephesian. Some of the crowd prompted Alexander, right? The Jews have put this man forward and, and Alexander's going to make a defense to the crowd. He's probably going to say, Paul's Jewish, but he's turned to the way and we're, I'm Jewish. Don't take this out on all Jews. But it says in verse 34, they recognize he's a Jew. And for about two hours, they all cry out with one voice, great is Artemis of the Ephesians. When people's religious and civic pride is abused, they get angry. When, when you stand up and you say, the people who are ruining the Eastern Shore are chicken farmers, right? People are like, what? My grandpa was a chicken farmer. You know, you're like, you, you, you get them. You get them. If I were to, to, to mock your religious sensibilities, if I were to, to, to get up here and sing a lewd song, to the tune of Amazing Grace with different lyrics. You'd be like, I'm going to knock you out. What are you doing? Now, hear, hear me here. This is why I think Koran burning is stupid. What purpose does it have to take the Koran and burn it? Other than to make a bunch of people really angry. They don't know why we're doing it other than we're desecrating their book that's not even supposed to touch the floor, according to them. What redemptive purpose does that have when Christians do that kind of stuff? What we ought to really do is to open the Quran, to, to look into Islamic theology, to say, here's where it's inconsistent with the Bible, here's where the Scripture is true, and then say to them, repent and trust in the Lord Jesus Christ, and not mess with them. You understand? Speaking to them, not messing with their stuff. We wouldn't like it if a bunch of people came in here and tore up our music and tore our Bibles. That would drive us crazy. What this man Demetrius is doing is he is stirring them up, saying, you have a right to be offended. Take it out on these Christians. They're shouting out, great is Artemis of the Ephesians. Today, we hear the cry, as churches are destroyed or people are, are killed in Muslim countries, they say, Allahu Akbar, God is great. And then they do this. The church, in its history and to its shame, has on occasion said, Jesus is Lord, and then gone in and destroyed countries or cultures, committed all kinds of sins in the name of Jesus, and Discerning Christians ought to say, that's not the work that God approves of. We ought to make sure that we are quick to say that saying Jesus is Lord is not a religious slogan to cover violence. Okay, let me, let me, let me point this out. I'm, I'm struggling with this sermon in this text because I think that something... Something is, is here that we need to be aware of. We find it so easy in our culture to mix Christianity and the state because we've, we were founded by, by people who had a Christian heritage and many of our laws are based on the scriptures, but as our population grows and our people drift from the word of God, our culture changes. 
Many Christians, we, we, wanna, we want the state to inform Christian, we want the state to enforce Christian values. More, more about that in just a moment. We need to be very careful of that. We need to be very careful that we're not saying to the world, we are a Christian nation, and, and the world of Islam is looking at us, and we are exporting pornography and alcohol and violent video games and all these things to the world, and they're saying that's what Christianity is about, and they're righteously outraged when they look at the moral quality of our culture. We need to be careful that we don't so closely identify Christianity with the state. Just a comment about Paul's example here in martyrdom. Paul says, for me to live is Christ, to die is gain. If I live in the flesh, that means fruitful labor. Yet which shall I choose? I cannot tell. I'm hard pressed between the two. My desire is to depart and be with Christ, for that is far better. But when they tell him, that was Philippians 1, 21 to 23, when they say to him, don't go down there, he listens. Verse 24, but to remain in the flesh is more necessary on your account. Paul has more work to do. It is not time to be martyred. And so as a believer, Paul is informing us here not to pursue martyrdom. All right, moving on. The crowd doesn't even know why it's there. They're just being whipped up into a frenzy. And as, as believers, we need to make sure this doesn't happen to us. We, we ought to be thankful that we have the Word of God so that we can test what comes to us from the world when the newspapers say, be outraged about this, or the news says, be outraged about that, or somebody sends out an email to a bunch of people and says, you, you need to get up in arms about, about this thing. We ought, we ought to say, let's not act like sheep from the world. Let's discern from the Word of God what we ought to do. The world will act the way the world acts. It will press the church, and it will do it ignorantly. The world uses violence to maintain, to preserve, and to protect itself, the culture that hates God. The state is authorized righteously to use violence when people won't respond to commands to do the right thing. And we ought to be thankful for the police and the army when they use their authority lawfully. But to use violence to suppress and to silence and to oppress is never right. Although in the world that we live in, it is often this way. Abel worshiped God in righteousness and Cain killed him. Joseph might have had a big mouth, but he was the, the, the chosen one of God, and the ten sons of Jacob were violent to him, to silence him. Two spies went into the land to spy it out, and ten spies rejected their report and were violent to them. The Pharisees were violent to suppress the teaching ministry of Jesus. As Christians, we ought to acknowledge that when people differ with us, Violence, intimidation, threats of violence. Recall Jesus says, if you call someone a fool, you're guilty of the fires of hell. This is not the way of Christ. It's not the way the church ought to operate in the world. As Christians, as we look at the political scene, and we look at Instances of violence in our culture against Christians, and we look at instances of violence around the world, we will feel 
frustration because the way that Christians are treated is unjust. It's true. The kingdom will be abused. This is not a cop-out to say this. This is biblical theology. One day, the king will make all things right. Revelation eleven fifteen says, the seventh angel, this is the seventh angel, which is far along in the, the process of God's judging of the world at the end of time. The seventh angel blew his trumpet. There were loud voices in heaven saying, the kingdom of the world has become the kingdom of our Lord and of his Christ, and he shall reign forever and ever. When they were putting Jesus on trial, Jesus said to Pilate, my kingdom is not of this world. If my kingdom were of this world, listen, my servants would have been fighting that I might not be delivered over to, this, to the Jews. But my kingdom is not from the world. God brings the kingdom into existence in the world. Christians do not bring it into existence by violence. I'm never going to finish all of this. Not going to happen. We have grown up in a culture where, where we think that when things go wrong, and this is, this is what is glorified in our violent video games and our violent movies, that men, to be men, ought to use force to enforce their will. Proverbs 14, 12 says, There is a way that seems right to a man, but its end is the way of death. Pick another scripture. All right, Proverbs 16, 25. There's a way that seems right to a man, but its end is the way of death. It's there twice. Just if you didn't get it, reading through verse 14, you're like, chapter of Proverbs of day, move on, move on. You know, uh, you're, two days later, there you are in Proverbs 16, and you hear the same verse again. The fear of the Lord, Proverbs 1, 7 says, is the beginning of knowledge. Fools despise wisdom and instruction. When God is king in a culture, the laws are good. And laws can still be good when God is not king, but they will not be good for long. As Christians, we need to realize that as culture changes, the church grows, in a sense, in its honesty before the world. As it becomes unpopular to be a Christian, only those who truly follow Christ will remain in the church. All of the fakers and the players will leave. And we have no right to compel the conscience of others because that's the realm of God. God determines what's right and wrong. He determines what is moral and immoral. Determining how that works out in an individual culture is the function of the government. They determine what's criminal or not. And if they get it wrong... The church suffers. A free society like ours is built on the principle that all men are accountable to God. As, as the water of our godly heritage recedes and we find ourselves living at the bottom of the well in the muck, we'll find the morality of our society crumbling as well. We look out at our culture and we see that discourse and respect have been replaced by bullying, outrage, shame, and slander. And I believe, just like in many other cultures, that the thought police 
who, who patrol the use of this word or that word and destroy your career if you slip, they will eventually resort to force, threats, and violence. But as Christians, we need to understand that's never the way of the kingdom. Never. Listen to how Paul describes the advance of the kingdom in 2 Corinthians 5.11. Therefore, knowing the fear of the Lord, we persuade others. There's a new way of doing things in the church. The world has one way. They will intimidate. They'll say, how dare you? How can you say that? You're, you're wretched. You're rotten. We persuade. 2 Corinthians 5.16 From now on, therefore, we regard no one according to the flesh. If anyone's in Christ, he's a new creation. The old has passed away. The new has come. When we are reconciled to God in the gospel, the way that we relate to the world, the way that we relate to other people, the way that we seek to change the world changes because now we are no longer just citizens of the world. We're citizens of Christ's kingdom and that changes everything about the way that we relate. Therefore, we are ambassadors for Christ, God making his appeal through us. We implore you on behalf of Christ, be reconciled to God. So what am I saying here? As Christians, we need to be very careful that we don't give in to the ways of the world and give in to outrage and offense. We ought to be outraged at immorality, but we ought to go and seek to convince others of the truth of the gospel so that society will change for the good instead of just seeking to change the laws and the ways of society because people are convinced of the wrongness that comes from idolatry, the idols of the self and convenience that are so alive in America, and so they do the wrong things. They don't do the wrong things because the laws are wrong. The laws are wrong because they're convinced in their mind of the wrong things. And when the gospel comes in, things change. I told you last week, I'm struggling over the meaning of this passage. It's, it's, it's difficult for me because I'm not just going to say obey the government. I'm not. In Luke's opinion, it seems here, as long as Christians don't strain the social fabric of a culture by blaspheming the gods, fair-minded government officials should protect the church from the rash, illegal acts of persecutors. Look what happens. This is section 35 through 44. I call this section, I'm from the government and I'm here to help. Right? What happens because we don't live in the kingdom in, of Christ in full bloom. And until uh, Christ comes, we ought to expect opposition and occasional persecution. But we should occasionally see someone do the right thing. Notice what happens. The town clerk, uh, he, this is not just some guy who takes notes in meetings of the town council. He's got authority. He is the town council between meetings. He says to the crowd, he's like, hey, everybody, you're screaming, you're yelling, hush. He says, the whole world knows Artemis of the Ephesians. This is a household name. You've done a great job marketing her don't worry about it right she's going to be just fine even if a couple people repent right when's the last time you drove by a, a temple of, of artemis in any case we say to this guy you're a, we, we ought to look at this guy even even though he's pluralistic and he worships a false god we ought to say he's a good man because he shows respect to others 
Not, not to their beliefs, but to their persons and themselves. We ought to, in a, a free society, be free to convince others with love and respect of the validity of our ideas without disrespecting them as people. This is a good man. He doesn't affirm Paul's beliefs, but he affirms Paul's right to those beliefs. And we ought to cheer him, though he worships Artemis, and he knows the truth by the year 2013. He then says, whatever the guilt, they're not guilty of sacrilege, robbing the temple, or of blasphemy, of reviling the goddess. They have, they have operated properly in the culture. There's a difference between saying there is no Allah, because there's not, or that Muhammad is mistaken at best and a false teacher at worst, and saying that the Mormon church has no gospel, there's a difference between saying those things and using insulting, demeaning, offensive words to make the same point, stirring them up. In that culture, this was a legal issue. Paul was not guilty of stirring up the people to be violent toward him, which he could have been convicted of. He was right to use convincing language and not coercive language as his method of ministry. The town clerk says, if he's done anything wrong, use the courts. Christians are not opposed to the rule of law. And as Christians, we are not disruptive in general of the public order. By being influenced and whipped into a frenzy, which as believers we ought to be discerning and never give in to the will of the crowd, but sift everything through the word of God, these folks found themselves on a verge of a crime, and this man restrained them. He dismisses the assembly. He says, go home. He used proper authority for good, proving that Rome has no case against Christianity. I've got to finish up. I gotta stop. Um, let me point out a danger here for Christians. There's a tendency to get caught up in politics and the relationship of the church of the state, and to think that because we have a morality, it ought to be the morality of the state. As 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 Christianity wanes in prominence, we ought to expect the laws to drift further and further from God's will. Now hear me out. This does not mean that we're affirming the rightness of our culture. It means that our primary response to our culture ought to be the preaching of the gospel so that the heart and mind of the people comes back into line with what the laws of the culture ought to be. But the church ought to always say to the state, I like you, but just as a friend. We, we maintain clear boundaries because the state is corruptible and the church with great religious power over the culture and the state is easily corrupted. We live in dangerous, stressful times. All kinds of people calling for all kinds of response and reaction. Remember this as I close here. Paul is delivered, delivered with having, without having to do anything. His friends are delivered without them having to lift a hand. God ministers to them and saves them through means, not through their own direct action, but he delivers them through this governmental employee. It can happen. It may happen in 2013. 
we ought to realize that though the kingdom of this world is passing away and all things are being shaken, we're seeing the most dramatic changes in our culture, I believe, since our country's founding. In the last 40 or 50 years, we need to realize that our future is secured because we, as the Bible says in the book of Hebrews, have received a kingdom which cannot be shaken. And that Christ's kingdom, the kingdom of his glory, is coming and will come no matter what the federal or state governments do in the next 5, 10, 20, or 50 years. When the kingdom comes, this is what the Bible says in Revelation 22, 3 through 4, no longer will there be anything accursed, but the throne of God and of the Lamb will be in God's city, and his servants will worship him. They'll see his face, and his name will be on their foreheads. We will be secure, no matter what. In the meantime, we ought to minister and speak and react and trust knowing that what we've received cannot and will not be shaken. Let me close by saying this. Work hard. Work hard. Be steadfast, Paul says, immovable, knowing that in the Lord your labor is not in vain. Speak out against public injustice. Speak out against immorality in the culture, but do it built on the foundation of the gospel. Because that is what truly shapes and changes hearts and minds. Changing laws just changes laws. Changing hearts changes the world. We'll close there. Father, I thank you for my brothers and sisters. Uh, Peter says in 1 Peter that there are many texts Many things which Paul wrote which are difficult and confusing. I confess that some of the things that Luke writes are confusing. I have a hard time, and I've had a hard time drawing out the meaning, but I believe that what I've said this morning is consistent, Lord. And so I pray that you would bless it. I pray that you would take away that which is harmful and confirm that which is helpful. Lord, we stand in your kingdom, though we still live in the kingdom of this world. And I pray that you would protect each and every person as they go out and attempt to share the gospel. Lord, we are a church of people who are active out in the world, speaking out against the evils of abortion, speaking out against wrong, working in the schools which are run by the state. And this is good. Father, and I pray that we would be Christians in the midst of this, but I pray that we would never give in to the way of operating that the world glorifies in, Father, insulting, demeaning, degrading, and ultimately turning to violence. These are the tools of the devil, and they have no place in the life of the Christian. May we speak boldly, but may we do so in love, believing that those who we speak to are not our enemies, but are prisoners of the dark kingdom of the devil, who, on hearing the gospel, may repent and be transferred into the kingdom of your beloved Son. Father, we pray that we would work on a gospel foundation, teaching and preaching, that people might come to you and be delivered. We pray this, Father, for your glory and for our joy. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.